Hello, and welcome to this first episode of the Evidence to Policy podcast series. The COVID-19 pandemic has demonstrated how important it is to manage well the links between evidence policy and the wider society. Governments that were able to quickly develop and implement policy informed by latest scientific evidence have shown better results in the fight against the pandemic. Today, we're very pleased to welcome Dr. John Lavis, professor at McMaster University in Hamilton, Canada. John is one of the leading researchers worldwide on the topic of evidence-informed policymaking. John has supported policymakers and stakeholders around the world to harness research evidence, citizen values and stakeholder insights in order to strengthen health and social systems and to get the right programs, services and products to the people who need them. A very warm welcome, John, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, John. How are you? I'm very good. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. Good. Great. Well, John, you have worked with evidence informed decision making for many years. What are the most important lessons you've learned on how to bridge the gap between evidence and policy? I think the the most important lesson which has stayed with me now through many, many years of working in this space is there's no uh, magic bullet. I think we need many complementary strategies. And, And for a number of years, I've talked about them as being in kind of five buckets. So one is that we need to improve the climate for evidence use. And there's many things that we can do there. We can celebrate the many great ways, for example, with COVID-19 that evidence was used, but we can also point out the ways that we can do better. Um, The second one is that, you know, we really need to do a better job of prioritizing the evidence that is most needed by decision makers and ideally co-produce it alongside them or at least representatives from the group of users to make sure that it it really answers their question and and is very directly relevant to their decision making needs the third bucket of strategies i think is we need to be able to package evidence for decision makers like policymakers, and push it to them at the right time so Um, When we see windows of opportunity to do things better and differently, we need to get them the evidence that they need. And sometimes that means working under very tight time constraints, hours and days, uh, let alone weeks and months. The fourth bucket of strategies that we often talk about are facilitating pull by policymakers and other decision makers, making it easier for them to kind of reach into our world of evidence and pull out the evidence they need to make decisions. And then the final bucket of strategies is um, exchange with policymakers and other decision makers. They have to take many, many considerations into uh, like factor in many other considerations when making decisions. So if we can set up deliberative dialogues or policy dialogues and other processes where they can put the evidence alongside these other factors, they're much more likely to act on it. So I think my, my big lessons learned are don't think about a magic bullet or a silver bullet. Think about many strategies. And these are five buckets of strategies that we think are powerfully complementary to one another. Wonderful. Thank you, John. And John, from your perspective, how will the Evidence to Policy Summit spark action on bridging the gap between evidence and policy? 
I think that, um, you know, the good news about the uh, Global Evidence to Policy Summit is it feels like it's the right summit at the right time. I, I feel like this is a once in a generation opportunity that we're facing um, because of COVID and the lessons learned through COVID, but also the the years of, of learning lessons leading up to this. It feels like a once in a, in a generation opportunity to build or rebuild evidence support systems. So we knew a lot going into the pandemic about what we needed to put in place. We've learned a lot from the pandemic about what else we need, but also what were the pieces that weren't in place. And in my 25 years of working in the field, I've never seen such interest in evidence. So now is the time to really move. And I think the Global Evidence to Policy Summit will bring many, many people together from around the world to really talk about how do we do this? This is our time uh, to move. If we're going to take advantage of this opportunity, we need to move now. And the summit gives us the opportunity to talk about how we work collaboratively to really advance this goal. Um, one of the other reasons why I, I'm so excited about the Global Evidence to Policy Summit is it so nicely builds on momentum from complementary initiatives. So in October, we had Cochrane Convenes that generated a lot of insights. Um, in November, we'll have the Global Summit. I've been working now for six months on the Global Commission on Evidence to address societal challenges. And, and the different people involved in these different processes are talking to one another to really try to identify areas of alignment so that we're speaking with a common voice about um, how we need to capitalize on this once in a generation opportunity. And the Global Evidence to Policy Summit will be quite unique by bringing together all of those people that really are trying to influence policymaking. So some of these other uh, things that I've talked about, you know, Cochrane may be more focused on patients and providers at times, the Global Evidence Commission speaking to all types of decision makers. But this summit is really how do we help policymakers make better use of evidence in their decision making. So again, right summit, right time. Uh, I think it's going to be a hugely valuable event. Wonderful. Thank you, John. And you've mentioned lessons learned. What has the COVID-19 pandemic taught you about evidence-informed decision-making? Well, a lot, you know, and, and it, I've, I've had the good fortune to, for many months now, work with the 25 commissioners involved in the Global Commission on Evidence to Address Societal Challenges. And, and you know, I guess two, two come to mind, and we have an exhibit um, from the, the Evidence Commission that we use to make this point, and then, and then probably I'll, I'll suggest a third lesson learned. But the first lesson learned is even in periods like we've been in for the last 19, 20 months where there's been a great demand for evidence, um, and maybe even particularly in periods like this, we need to pay careful attention to what we mean by evidence. So um, many things have gone well with the COVID evidence response, but one of the things that in my view hasn't gone well is that other things than best evidence often crowded out best evidence. And what I mean by these other things are uh, preprints of single studies that aren't put in the context of other studies, uh, you know, addressing the same question, uh, expert opinion, lots of people offering their advice, not always clear what evidence they're drawing on, uh, lots of expert panels issuing recommendations, again, often not clear what the evidence is backing up their recommendations. 
and finally, jurisdictional scans. And we know it's important to policymakers to know what are other countries doing. But when you ask what other countries are doing, you also need to ask, have you evaluated what you're doing so that we know what you're learning from what you're trying. So just the fact that you're doing it isn't very helpful. The fact that you're doing it and you've evaluated it is helpful. So with all of those other things, um, they can still be valuable, but we have to take steps to ask the experts, what's your opinion based on? We need to hold panels to greater account in terms of using evidence. The second and kind of related evidence is that even when we look at best evidence, it feels like there hasn't always been balance among the forms of evidence and some forms of evidence have crowded out others. So in the COVID era, big focus on data analytics, big focus on modeling, big focus on one out of one off evaluations, but they've often crowded out behavioral and implementation research. That's key to get, you know, vaccines into the arms of everybody. They've crowded out qualitative insights that give perspectives into how different equity-seeking groups, you know, experience things like vaccine campaigns. They've sometimes crowded out rigorously conducted evidence syntheses and guidelines. So to me, this it shouldn't be a competition among forms of evidence. We need to match the right form of evidence to the right question. So we need greater balance. And then maybe the third lesson learned, which is kind of different from the first two, is that I think we really need to invest in global public goods and in equitably distributed capacities to support the use of evidence in policymaking. So those global public goods include the normative guidance coming out of places like the World Health Organization, but they also include syntheses of the best evidence globally, like the ones done by Cochrane. And every country needs to have capacities to use evidence in policymaking. And those are things that each country needs to build up. But the UN system, including WHO, also has a role to play in supporting um, its member states to develop these capacities. So going forward, I hope one of the things out of COVID-19 is we invest more in those global public goods and we invest in these equitably distributed capacities to use evidence so that every country uh, can benefit from the use of evidence um, and there can be more of an even playing field. So those are our three kind of lessons. Pay careful attention to what we mean by the evidence, seek balance among forms of evidence, and then make the right investments in these public goods and in these distributed capacities to use evidence. That's wonderful. Thank you, John. John, could you please comment on the role of trust between researchers and decision makers? I think trust is absolutely critical in, in relationships between decision makers and uh, researchers. And, you know, I sometimes think it's helpful to look at it from both sides of that relationship. So if you look at it from the perspective of decision makers, they have to have the trust to be willing to ask you a question knowing they may not like the result. And for a policymaker, you know, that can be tough. Um, they also need to trust that the evidence product that you'll deliver will be on time and be fit for purpose. And very often they're working to a timeline. They have no control over that. And so they need to trust that you will get them something they can use in that time frame. And if it comes even hours and certainly days later, uh, it's not going to be helpful. And then they also need the trust that you won't share confidential information you pick up when working with them. So um, 
you know, we spend a lot of time on on calls with policymakers, understanding what the issue is where we may be able to help with evidence. And in that process, we often learn about things happening behind the scenes, but we have to respect that the, that is confidential information being shared with us. So, so they need to trust us, but then reciprocally from our side, um, you know, we need to be able to trust them. We need to trust that over time, uh, you know, the benefits of partnering will outweigh the costs. So the benefits to me are things like the opportunity to have a real world impact. You know, I could go away and do all my research, um, but if I partner with policymakers dealing with issues that they are working on, I have a much greater opportunity to have real world impact. But there are costs to me of doing that. It takes a lot more time. Um, I might have to live with an embargo, like I can't put something in the public domain for 30 days, uh, and I may work under many other constraints. So I have to trust them that the benefits will outweigh the costs. I also need to trust them that there won't be any harms. They won't change the terms of engagement well along in the process. I may have invested many weeks and months of my time and I need to know that two days before we're done, they're not going to pull back and say, no, we have to stop. You can't use any of the data. So I think from our perspective as researchers, we also need to be able to trust them. So, you know, coming back to my original comment, trust is absolutely essential on both sides. Uh, decision makers need to trust us. We need to trust them. But when we do trust one another, I think we can get so much farther faster. They will get more useful evidence. We will be given this unbelievable opportunity to make maybe a bit of a difference um, in helping them make good decisions. Great. Thank you, John. And, and finally, what are your three pieces of advice for evidence-informed decision-making during crises such as COVID-19? I am always hesitant to give advice, but, but I do think that... Um, um, you know, having spent many months working with the Evidence Commission and the uh, 25 amazing commissioners that we have the good fortune to work with, um, you know, one, one piece of advice, I guess, would be for government policymakers is having lived through these extraordinary, you know, 19 or 20 months, um, you know, and seeing the many things that went well and the many things that went poorly, and in particular in how evidence was used. Take the time in the coming period to take a really close look at a couple of different things that are critical for your use of evidence. The kind of structures and processes that you follow when making decisions that ideally have ways in for evidence. Take a look at the staff you have around you to support your decision making. Do they have the skills to use evidence? Are they networked to other groups within the country and globally to be able to find the best evidence? Um, take a look at your government science advisors and ask, are they, have they been selected to be able to find, contextualize, and communicate different forms of evidence? Um, and take a close look at your advisory bodies, your scientific advisory bodies, and think about holding them to higher standards for their use of evidence. So now is the time, you know, as we continue to struggle with COVID, and we start to think about recovery, now is the time to be taking a close look at things. I guess, you know, a second piece of advice would be for folks like us that focus more as intermediaries between the world of decision making and the world of evidence production. Um, 
I think, you know, what we've learned here is we really need to be better at matching in a very timely and responsive way the best evidence to the question asked. So instead of saying, you've come to me with your question, I do, I have this type of evidence, I'm going to give you back my type of evidence, whether it's what you want or not. I think we need to be better at saying, okay, you came to us with this question. Well, it's a question about a problem and data analytics of this type may be helpful, or it's a question about which option to pick. So here's the synthesis of evaluations of benefits and harms. So we really need as evidence intermediaries to up our game and saying, if that's your question, here are the forms of evidence that can best help you. And then I guess my final bit of advice is, is again, a bit for my community evidence groups. I think we need to really focus going forward on having the agility to pivot to new topics um, when global emergencies strike. So, um, you know, and, and I've read every global commission on COVID that there is, they often make that argument for vaccines, diagnostic and, uh, diagnostics and therapeutics, but, but they don't mention the many forms of evidence that will determine whether those products get to the people who need them. So you need the folks who can synthesize that behavioral and implementation research, the qualitative insights, all of these different pieces, if those vaccines, diagnostics and therapeutics are gonna get to people. So all of us who focus on those types of questions are gonna return to our usual areas of work, but we need to be prepared in future to pivot again if we have, and we're likely to have, future um, health emergencies. That ability to pivot back um, at the drop of a hat to bring all of these different forms of evidence to bear are key. So, so again, advice, government policymakers, now's the time to take a good hard look at what you have working well and what needs to be improved. You know, the evidence intermediaries, we need to match the questions coming in to the right forms of evidence. And with evidence groups, we really need to be, you know, as we perhaps return to our, our usual topics, we need to be prepared uh, to pivot back to health emergencies when the need arises again. So those are our three pieces of advice uh, that I've taken away from uh, or that I've been thinking about over the last couple of months. That's wonderful, John. Thank you so much for answering our questions. And it was a pleasure to have you here all the way from Toronto. This is the end of the first episode. Uh, so do not hesitate to register on e2psummit2021.org to participate in the event, which will be held from November 15th to 17th, 2021. See you soon for a new episode.